1912, a book dealer named Wilfred Voynich came into possession of a small leather manuscript that appeared to be from the 1400s. Voynich had a working knowledge of an astounding 18 languages, and yet he couldn't identify the letters and words used in the book. No one can. It is written in a language that, for 600 years, nobody on earth has been able to decipher. You're listening to Race and Tyler Talk Wikipedia, Episode 11, The Voynich Manuscript. Happy New Year! Happy New Year, Tyler. It's good to talk to you. <laughs> nice to talk to you. How's your night going? Going good. Um, you told me about your New Year's plans, which I think you should share. I'll tell you what mine are. We, oh, uh, uh, we the, the children are in bed. And Love. after I'm done recording this, I imagine we will watch the Great British British Bake Baking Show until midnight. <laughs> oh, that's lovely. Have you watched the holiday episode that they did with the cast of Dairy Girls? No, but I saw that I've seen that there's something called a holiday episode. First of all, I haven't really watched Great British Bake Off. I know that's my fault. It's a sin that I'm trying to work on. Because uh, it looks fantastic, but I did watch their holiday episodes, and the idea of them having a is already a great idea. Yeah, and then bringing in the cast of Dairy Girls is also a great idea, and they did those two things in the same episode. <laughs> so, um, and a plug for Dairy Girls, by the way, it's a great show. Well, so I was just going to say this is a great uh, illustration of the difference between you and I because you watch a lot of reality TV. Oh, it's not reality. Dairy Girls isn't. No. Oh, okay. Oh, it's it was... so good. no, it's an Irish. Um, I don't want to say sitcom because that's like a specific type, but it's more like a comedy show, and you know has a narrative and everything, and it's extremely Irish to the point where subtitles are very helpful. <laughs> <laughs> very silly, very funny, and it also takes place in the '90s, so soft spot there. Well, uh, my apologies. I thought it was a show about like women who are forced to run a dairy that they're not capable of actually. (laughs) I mean, you are correct in that. I do watch a lot more of reality TV than you do. I haven't even asked you about Real Housewives of Salt Lake City. You're probably the only friend that I have not asked. (laughs) You could not pay me enough to watch that. (laughs) And I would pay money to watch it. That. That's a very clear difference between the two of us. Uh, I don't know what it means. It, it just is one that I find very fun. Um, <laughs> well, but... I do recommend Dairy Girls. I think you'll really love it. Okay. And... and the episode with them, holiday cooking, is lovely as well. Okay, I'm excited. Yeah, the 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 Great British Bake. I never get the name right, but it's one of the only reality shows I watch and or have watched. And Julie and I realized that when our first child was born. We binge watched um, Project Runway, which is one of the only other um, oh, TV okay. shows I watched. Just like you're at home a lot, you're kind of just nesting with this little infant who needs a lot of help. And we watched uh-huh. a ton of Project Runway, and then this time around, just in the last like four or five weeks, I've watched a lot of British people baking tarts, <laughs> and um, it's it's really it's really delightful. It's very British. Um, like everyone's really. Um, like oh i want i want the other person to win and uh very polite they're and, nice and, right and yes. yeah and it's, it's just great it's it's a great show. 
And I feel My like thing I learned with a lot the... about baking too. I've learned a lot of uh, terminology ah. and techniques. And every time I, I need to start keeping a list. I'm like, I could make that and it would be fun to try. Oh, that is cool. Yeah. My thing with uh, cooking reality TV shows, especially the American ones, is I feel like a lot of times the technique is just kind of second tier to whatever the TV show is. Yeah. I really like that Bake Off um, is all about technique and getting the technique right. And they don't try to cloud that. And that's how I feel about Chopped as well. I love love Chopped for that reason because it's just – Who's more skilled? It's nothing, nothing other than that. It's just who can do this better. Yeah, and I think that's why I enjoy it. I would, and I would say the same thing about Project Runway, which I never in a million years thought I would enjoy, but I have. Ah. I loved it, and I have ah. very strong feelings about every season I've watched. <laughs> oh, I may have to check that out. It's fun. Um, yeah, so I'm glad. You know, I'd love to. I'd want you to share. You already told me, but what? What are your New Year's plans? <laughs> They're beautiful. Uh, so far, it's been a great night. I started out. Right after work, I went down to the hot tub in my apartment and had a nice little soak. And my apartment, they've put up lights and they've put up a New Year's slideshow where it says Santa Claus is coming to town and he's bringing the vaccine for 2021. (laughs) It's a very looking slideshow, but it's kind of cute. And then I walked to 7-Eleven and I got a Dr. Pepper and I will be closing out the night playing Minecraft and watching the other Bolin girl and whatever other movies I have time for. <laughs> I love it. It's beautiful. I, I mean, it's excited for the other Bolin girl. Cause I haven't watched that since it came out and you know, 2007, 2008 movies. It's a good time. <laughs> I just, I love that plan. It's very Tyler that obviously Seven Eleven. if you ever went missing, I'd be the cop would be like, I need a canvas <laughs> of all the seven elevens in a 20 mile radius. We will find him and bring him home. Yeah. And it's um, your, your social distancing. You're uh, having a great time. I just, I love that you told me those are your plans. It's great. It's, it's what we're doing tonight. Good way to end out 2020. Sure. Yeah. Um, so I do have a, a get to know you question that um, is somewhat related to our topic. Oh, great. And this question, I really enjoy. It's a question that I learned. Um, It's a get to know you question I encountered while um, an English major um, at BYU with you. um, And that uh, they would do a monthly like spotlight of a faculty member and put it up on the wall in the English department. And I was probably the only um, doofus who was standing there reading them, but I thought they were interesting. And um, one of the questions they would ask is, what's the oldest thing you own? Oh, <laughs> I'm looking around my apartment. Yeah. Um, well, this is kind of a dumb answer, but I'm looking at my bookshelf and there are a lot of books on here that are older than me. You know, they're sure. leather bound and they've got the gold writing on them. They're clearly from at least 50 years ago. So that's kind of the boring answer. More sentimentally, I have a couple of stuffed animals from my childhood. So those are, you know, 95, 96. Okay. Um, but I don't think I own anything like truly, truly old. I don't have like, you know, a piece of family jewelry or anything sure. like that. Pretty um, simple. Yeah. Well, here's to the boring answer because mine is also a book. 
Um, and it's um, it's my brother-in-law gave me a copy for my birthday when I was like 17. He found it in an antique store and thought I would like it, which I do enjoy having it. And it's a copy of Leaves of Grass from, um, I, oh, I forgot to look at the exact year, but it's like 1920 or something like that. It's pretty old. Um, and so that's the oldest thing that I could think of that I own. I've oh, seen that's people, yeah, I've seen people who cheat or I saw professors who were like, well, I have a, um, like a piece of sandstone in my office and that was formed. But I don't think that counts. <laughs> like a billion years. Yeah. Like, well, <laughs> I use a rock as a doorstop and it was made during the Cretaceous period. That doesn't count. Um, no. Yeah. But I asked that question because our topic today is um, a an antique, I guess you could say, a very old document about which we know very, very little, but that I find fascinating. This is probably one of the first Wikipedia articles that ever really um, grabbed me in the way that we kind of have talked about where I, I just I go back and read it and I'm just fascinated by it. So the document we're talking about is called the Voynich, or possibly Voynich, depending on how you choose to pronounce it, manuscript. And it's about nine by six and a half inches, so a relatively small manuscript. It's about 240 pages long, although some are missing. It seems pretty clear that there's chunks missing. Some of those pages also fold out into big kind of um, like portfolio things. So it depends on how you count, but about 240 pages. It's written on leather vellum, um, which is um, cured calf skins. And it, uh, approximately 14 to 15 calf skins in total made this book. Um, and it's written and has illustrations inside. The writing goes from left to right. It's in paragraphs. It's indented, typically. Um, it has illustrations. There's herbal illustrations, so like diagrams of plants that you might have seen, um, like the root structure and a stem and a rose kind of diagrammed out very beautifully, like an almost an illuminated manuscript kind of feel. There's astronomical charts, um, cosmological charts and symbols. Um, there's pharmaceutical kind of tables and, and um, charts. And... Um, but the, the key to it all is that this is all written in an unknown writing system. <laughs> so it's hundreds and hundreds of pages um, written by hand in ink, but the letters um, come from no writing system that we're aware of, and no one has been able to decode what it means. There's approximately 20 characters, um, maybe up to 24, 25, depending on, you know, there's some debate about the characters, whether, you know, two together is its own character or whatever. Um, it's written flowingly, meaning um, this is a new word that I learned. The ductus of the writing is flowing, which oh. means the, basically the flow of the writing. It's not choppy. The letters are, you know, flow into one another at, um, as if each letter was written one after the next. Like and, the handwritten. Yes. Yeah. Handwritten and not as if um, one of the reasons this becomes... Uh, important that people point out is because if you were um, like making a code, so you're like, oh, okay, um, the letter F is this weird upside down squiggle thing, you would look at your chart and then go over and put the upside down squiggle. But this was written by somebody who, who knew all the letters and was writing it freely with, by hand. Oh, okay. And um, so that's what it is. It's this small book with 
pictures, illustrations. Um, the illustrations, some of them are in color and it looks like the color may have been added later. And it's of unknown um, date um, to, uh, by and large. We do know that the calfskins, the leather that, they, um, that they're written on come, um, are hundreds of years old and were, are all the, of the same age, all of the calfskins, all the leather is from the same time. That was actually discovered by a, a research um, study done at the University of Arizona, which is where I went to law school. Mm -hmm. And, but that's, so that's what it is. It's this little book with some pictures in it in a language that nobody knows and that the greatest code breakers in the world haven't been able to even make a dent in at all. So the history of this manuscript, it feels like we kind of know simultaneously a lot about this very strange manuscript that came out of nowhere, but we also don't really know very much about it. Uh, we know that it was purchased in 1912 by a guy named Wilfred Voynich or Voynich. And that's where the name of the manuscript comes from. He's like the most recent person to purchase the manuscript. And he said that he bought it at, let me get this right. He bought it at some kind of library. I mean, the thing with Wilfred Voynich is he was, he operated a rare book business. So he bought this book from the sale of this big library and included it in his collection and said, I have this manuscript, you know, it can't be translated. It has this big history, et cetera. Um, historically, we do know that there were other people who have owned this manuscript and they've written about it. And then they've said, I have this thing that can't be translated. I don't know what it is. There are some interesting people in here. A lot of the people who have owned the manuscript are only like, they only have Wikipedia articles because of their connection to the manuscript. Yeah. But there are other people who were, you know, more famous doctors or alchemists of the time period who have reputations for other things. And they've also possessed the manuscript at different points. I thought an interesting name on this list, the oldest person that we know who owned it was Rudolf II. And he was a Holy Roman Emperor in the time that he lived in the 1500s. Uh, other than that, we really do not know much about this. You know, as Race talked about, we know that it's been carbon dated back to the 14 or 1500s. So it comes from the time period that it purports to come from, but nobody's been able to translate it in the many years that it's been passed down. And I think even the tenuous, the connection to uh, Voynich himself is kind of tenuous. There's lapses in the middle where we don't really know where the manuscript was or you know, even if he found it himself, it's, it's not really clear. Yeah. And that leads to some interesting theories, which we'll definitely talk about. But um, the fact that we can't really nail down where it's been has led some people. And as you pointed out, Voynich was a, a rare document and book dealer. And so it's led some people to think, well, maybe he just invented it. Maybe he just created it as a way to, you know, make money. And he, he did sell it. Um, and then the people are continue to be interested in it. And so that's potentially a possibility, although I think there's problems with that theory. And so, yeah, we don't know. There's, um, there's some letters that people have pointed to saying, you know, like, well, this old, like Tyler said, there's a whole list of possible people that um, have been kind of implicated in owning it. 
Um, some of you, um, Albertus Mangus, Roger Bacon, Giovanni Fontana. I mean, I just kind of pulled some of the names out that, that are some of the theories, but we can't tie any of it directly to a person. And the letters that do exist where somebody says, I have this weird book and I can't understand it. Um, and it's, you know, indecipherable. Well, that's not super helpful because um, that could, that, I mean, by definition, you're describing a book that you don't know anything about. You don't know the name of it. You don't know what language it's written in. They didn't say I have an ancient Greek book or I have a, you know, a whatever it's. Um, and so that could be referring to this manuscript, but maybe not. So I'm no linguist, but there's some really interesting aspects of the um, words, if you can call them that, the collection of collections of characters that are in this, um, in the Voynich manuscript. Um, I learned some new words, English words, um, while reading about this um, on the Wikipedia page, phonological and orthographic. Those are both mm. relating to the study of words and the, the logic behind how words and spelling and stuff like that are used in a language, which is super interesting. But so the, the writing itself um, is grouped into what they called words or word tokens, if you want to use that. But collections of, of letters and no letter is shorter than two, or no word is shorter than two letters or longer than 10 letters, which I think is, is interesting. So there's English. We have plenty of one letter words and, you know, not a small amount of longer than 10 letter words. But this is a, more restricted than that. It's consistent across the board with that. Um, two to 10 is, is it. And there's some interesting patterns that code breakers and linguists and researchers have found when looking at this collection of symbols. Um, so some words only occur in certain sections. So if you take all of the characters and map it out, um, some combinations of letters are only in, for instance, the um, botany portions, you know, the parts that seem to be talking about plants. Mm. Other words are found everywhere. Some words are only in the, you know, the stuff talking about cosmology. And that's significant. It's at least interesting for, um, you know, people who study this to try and say, it seems like there's some sort of system going on here. There's also some logic um, on the word level. So for instance, certain characters must appear in each word. And in English, we have rules like that, like every word has to have a vowel in it in English. Not all languages have that particular rule. Like if you have a vowel consonant split, there are languages that don't do that. Um, but English does. Um, also, some characters never follow others. Um, and in English, we sort of have something like that in, you know, standard English. We have some words that come mostly from Arabic, I think, where you can have a Q that is not followed by a U. But in, in, you know, the by and large in English, if you have a Q, it is followed by a, a U. And so that's just an example, an English example of like a rule that you would pick up on. If you just had all the letters, English letters, you didn't know anything about it. You pretty quickly could say, well, I see that this letter always has this other letter after it and with no exceptions. So there's some things like that in um, Voynich E's, as researchers like to call it. And some of the letters can be doubled or even tripled, but other letters are never doubled or tripled. And I was interested in tripling letters. Um, Tyler, can you, do you have any guesses about languages that use triple letters? English does not. Triple letters, other yeah. languages? Well, what? I did see on here that this doesn't really count, but like 
Roman numerals you can use triple letters. Right. But well, would a language actually use triple letters in its own words? Yes, there are some. Any guesses? <laughs> oh. I wonder, and like, what would that sound like? Would that sound yeah. different than a... I don't know. I'm at a loss. So the ones that I found in a very cursory search are um, Tamil, the Southeast Asian language. Okay. Um, is that how you pronounce it, or is it Tamil? I don't I know, actually, but is that... Did we talk about that when we talked about Malaysia? I think I we think did, yes. Is it Malaysia? I, I, yeah. I think it's Tamil. Um, okay. But Tamil has triple letters, um, as does Dutch. And there's a few other languages that, that do that. Um, I think it was Romanian. Is that right? Oh, okay. Anyway, there are a few languages that do that, which I was surprised to see because it didn't, because um, English doesn't have that. And um, Tyler, you speak a very strange language. <laughs> Listeners <laughs> to the podcast may not know. Um, does Sutuil use double letters? And explain explain to the people at home what Sutuil is. <laughs> Sutuil is a language that I learned when I was living in Guatemala, and it's uh, of Mayan derivation. So if you talk about the Mayan languages, you know, like Mayan and Aztec and Incan, um, it's a language that is currently spoken that is related to that family of languages. And it's only spoken by about 50,000 speakers who live in a particular area of Guatemala. Um, unfortunately, that language is not written. So the way that that language is taught today in schools is by using the Latin alphabet and people have mm -hmm. kind of pushed it to make it fit. Okay. Um, so though, if you were to talk about like triple letters. Or even double, because some languages don't even ever double letters. I don't even really know if Sutuild uses double letters. Every, con every letter has pretty much its own sound, if I'm thinking about it. They use apostrophes to change the sound of a letter. So like mm -hmm. K has a K sound, but K apostrophe has a K sound, which changes it a little bit in the way that like maybe a double letter could do, you know, if you wanted to yeah. write that way. Hmm. Um, now, I'm going to say that they probably do not use double letters, but I'm going to double check my notes on that because I can't think of an example. Interesting. So the very little contact I had with Sutua, like you said, it's spoken in a basically one village in Guatemala. Yeah. And um, I've seen it written like the, Eng the, the Latin alphabet version of it. And what I remember was lots of Z's and lots of T's and lots of apostrophes. <laughs> and I was afraid. <laughs> yes. Uh -huh. Isn't it funny how sometimes languages look that way? Yeah. Like I, Sutuil in particular was like, there are so many Z's. <laughs> <laughs> and when I look at Armenian, my brother speaks Armenian from his mission and it, I mean, it's a different alphabet, but to me, it looks like H's and U's. I'm like, yeah, H, U, and N. I don't see any other letters here. <laughs> yeah. Um, it seems like, speaking of like word taxonomy rules, it seems like in Sutuil, the rule is you have to have a Z like every other letter. It looks like that, definitely. <laughs> so well, Sutuil, I think, I mean, we could do a whole episode on Sutuil. I and love we, talking and about we, it. And we must. We must, yeah. But I think, you know, just offhand, one of the cool things about Sutuil is that the letters have tendencies to mean things. Like, the letter K is really always connected to the first person. Whoa. Using the letter K, you're typically talking about yourself. And the letter A is typically used for the second person. And I don't really think we have that in English. I don't know. Maybe 
you could say maybe the D is connected to past tense. Yeah. That's something that comes up a lot, but yeah. we don't have the, the, S, the yeah, S, S is, is like plural. plural. But not exclusively or even really that strongly. Like only No, and it's not that words. extensive. Yeah. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Like it's to a point where you can just kind of listen to Sutuil and know what person they're talking to. yeah uh that's so cool yeah we have to do an episode on situa i love hearing you talk about that and and it it truly is fascinating the way languages are formed and how different they can be and like um attributes that one language has that are super important like like the tones in some asian languages that are just all important whereas in english we don't have really anything like that yeah Um, as far as me you know like linguistic meaning there's nuances or whatever with your with your tone, you can be sarcastic or whatever, but like tones, tones, like the sound, the way you pronounce it. It's just interesting how some languages, um, like you were saying, Sutuil, the the K and the A, that is very unique and pretty structured. And um, like I said, if you were just trying to pick Sutuil apart, you would eventually figure that out, right? Yeah, you would notice the pattern, yes. Mm -hmm. And so, that's why this is really interesting, the Voynich manuscript, because there are patterns like that. It seems like there was some logic and, and whoever mm. wrote this was doing things on purpose, but we just have no idea what it was. And um, I, one of the other things that I find very interesting about this, so let's say, Tyler, like you said, um, Sutuil isn't really a written language, but let's say that there was a book, a Sutuil book, and then, um, you know, there's an asteroid or whatever, and only um, the Sutuil book survives and all the Sutuil speakers were gone, um, and somebody found it, would um, they be able to connect it to any other languages? Mm. It would be, I mean, <laughs> it would be really hard to do because the languages that are connected to Sutuil are the languages of the villages next door. So Kachikel and Kiche. You know, if you are familiar with Mayan languages, then yeah, they sound very similar. Uh, They might even look similar on paper. But if you're not, no way. (laughs) Interesting. But, but, I mean, so if you had a a Sutuil book and a Kachikel book, even though they're not the same, um, you would be able to see these. There's clearly some relation here. Am I wrong about that? Oh, totally. No, you can even see that today if you were to buy textbooks in both because they are written down in a Latin alphabet. Yeah. Kakchikel looks a lot like Sutuel. Yeah. I had a little bit of contact with Kiche on my mission, and it was lots, a lot more, well, K's and Q's than T's and Z's. Um, but yeah as as i understand it you can you can see like a common ancestor and language like pedigree is a really fascinating um that's another wikipedia page listeners can go look at it just like yeah the branches of language and how things emerge but um this isn't like that so if if tyler sutuil book um you know ended up on some scholar's desk they realize oh well this is a mayan language Right. But the Voynich manuscript resembles nothing. The symbols resemble nothing. And we're really kind of at a loss for to connect it to anything. And so except for those linguistic phenomena, we don't really have any reason to believe that it's even a language. But those those patterns are really strong. And it makes us it makes people believe that this is this was intelligible to someone at some point and maybe just one person. But to someone at some point, if it doesn't look like it was written just 
picking random symbols because there's some order to it and it's re not related to, um, to anything else. Now, as far as the other features of the document that try and help us kind of locate it in time and place, well, there's some artwork of plants, which should be helpful if you think about it. Like if I were drawing the plants where I live, they would look quite different from Tyler's because I would draw saguaro cactus and I would draw, you know, um, things that, that um, wouldn't draw very many palm trees where Tyler sees palm trees. And they, those would be vastly different from Ireland's, you know, flora. And so the plants in the book really aren't helpful, unfortunately. Many of the drawings in the herbal section seem to be like a mismatch. So the roots of one species have been connected to the leaves of another, and then it's got oh, the flower what? of a completely different <laughs> like species. Oh, I didn't even know about this. Yeah. So that kind of detail leads people to think, well, then maybe this is just some big weird joke or, yeah. and there, there are a few identifiable species. Um, like there's a fern that we know about. And I think a pansy that, that is like an accepted European flower. But other than that, it's not helpful. It's almost like it's made up or like um, for some reason, like a mishmash. But the, the features of it make us believe that somebody understood it, but it, the, it really getting into the content of the book raises more questions than it answers because <laughs> they have weird Franken plants. All right. Is this real or what's the deal here? <laughs> and I have, to, I have to preface this by saying this Wikipedia page, Race introduced me to it, and it has kind of hit my intellectual world like an asteroid because I started reading about this thing and you cannot really figure it out. Unfortunately, <laughs> I thought that I knew how the world worked until I read this Wikipedia. <laughs> and I'm like, uh, I don't know. <laughs> you know, it just yeah. makes sense. It's almost frustrating reading about this because you want to be able to figure it out, but I think you can kind of put, put forth some theories. So what do you yeah. think? Well, I, first of all, I love what you said about that it's frustrating. And I, I think that's one reason I love it because it is frustrating. Um, like, I, I think as humans, we, we both are terrified of mystery and like the unknown, but we also crave it. Um, and I think we crave it because the unknown is scary, but I think, I think the idea of knowing and understanding everything is just as scary. Mm -hmm. um, I've thought I've thought a lot about this this week about this manuscript and why I'm so interested in it. And I think it's the reason we like unsolved. Uh, and I, I particular, I love me a good like, and nobody knows where, <laughs> what happened to this boat. I just love it because, and I think that that need, I think it's a real thing that people are drawn to because the idea that we understand everything and can catalog everything is a little stifling and a little scary. Um, it's a little antiseptic and. I don't know. And so that's, I, I agree that it's frustrating, but I also, um, I love it. <laughs> I love filler. it so yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So my personal theory is that this, this is as old as it seems to be. Um, there's really no debate about whether the leather that it's written on is old, but um, there is some speculation that maybe it was just old leather that somebody wrote on, you know, 80 years ago. 
Yeah, and I saw saw a frustrating claim, by the way, of somebody who said there's absolutely no way that blank pieces of vellum in this quantity could have survived as long as it had. Like, it had to have been written. Oh, that frustrates you? Oh, I just, I'm like, it couldn't have been blank? Why not? (laughs) Yeah, see, I think, I find that very compelling. Ah, okay. But, but, um... But this guy was, he dealt in ancient documents and like old, rare, you know, manuscripts. So if anybody was going to get their hands on 15 blank calfskins from 1420, it was him. It was this guy. Right, right. So, so I do find that compelling because what are the odds you're going to find matching leather from the exact same period in a batch like that that has no writing on it? And that's right. something we didn't mention. This had never, um, often documents in the old in olden days um, were recycled because it was expensive. It was written on like a, a, an animal skin. And so if you wrote, you know, a, a proclamation or something, a new, some new rule that you hang on the wall on it, and then you need to write another one, well, you can just reuse it sometimes. But there's no indication that these were ever written on um, these leathers. And um, I also am not sure that we ever specified that this manuscript ended up in this guy's possession in like the early 1900s. Yeah, so it's kind of recent. It's pretty recent. And so, mm-hmm. but I do not think that it's, it is a new like invention. I think it is as old as the leather. I think the writing is as old as the leather. Mm-hmm. And I think that it was either a, um, like a very elaborate code, some sort of, made up or abbreviated language that some you know savant or some um kind of genius person was using and um my basis for that is so leonardo da vinci would often encode his um who was from Mm. a different time and not although this there is indication that um the voynich manuscript came from italy um there's a few Latin words throughout the text. Um, like the, there's one place where the language or the, the months are written in um, Voynichese and in Latin. And the Latin spelling of one of the months is like, was um, a regionalism, like a specific to um, Northern Italy or something like that. Oh, mm. but I think that, I think that makes the most sense because there were kind of, this was the time of the Renaissance. There were these really, kind of brilliant people. There were people who were devoting their lives to science for the first time and to understanding things. And I don't think it's crazy that somebody could come up with a, um, an encoded language. If you, you know, are sitting in a monastery for 40 years and devoting yourself to some sort of enlightenment or study of whatever, um, you could come up with a system and you could learn to write fluently in it. And so that's what I think that's where I, that's where I'm leaning today, but Every time I read this Wikipedia article, my mind changes. There have been times where I'm convinced. I'm like, this ding dong made this stupid book <laughs> and then told people, oh, it's really old. The king of, uh, of, of, you know, the Holy Roman Empire held this bad boy. Somebody give me a bunch of uh, money for it. <laughs> yeah, seriously. I mean, it, it sounds like a classic turn of the century pull your audience kind of thing right definitely and and um some of the i think i alluded to this earlier but there's these letters that are like oh yeah roger bacon had this weird book that he couldn't or he he supposedly wrote this weird book that people were stumped by 
and then it passed to this other person. And people have pointed out, well, this guy, Voynich, would have known that that letter existed, and then he could have just created a book yeah. to fit the description in that letter. And he, then was he would have, there. yeah, then he'd have a, a document and a letter that purports to like tie it to antiquity. I found the missing book. Exactly. It's been lost. Right, right. Exactly. So that's, I think it's real. I choose to believe the truth is out there somewhere. <laughs> Um, what, but what do you think? I think that's fair. Uh, I have two thoughts that again are frustrating because I'm neither a linguist nor am I a cryptologist. Is that what you say? Somebody who studies, uh, codes. I may have that word. Cryptanalysis. I'm not a cryptanalyst. (laughs) Um, all I know about this is that in the Da Vinci Code books, um, Robert Langdon's the character has he's like a Harvard cryptologist cryptologist and then then I remember that Harvard and like a bunch of people were like that doesn't exist (laughs) so yet again my dreams are dashed I'm bestseller yeah Yeah. (laughs) disappointing uh no so my thoughts as someone who is not a code breaker are I feel like it is and this is probably wrong, but I feel like <laughs> it's very easy to invent a code that cannot be broken. Because there are so many ways of permutating words. And even if you read this Wikipedia page, it goes into what some of the, the ways may have been. Like, yes, a, you can shift all the vowels around, or you can put all the letters in alphabetical order. Or you can use like a zodiac chart and say everything has to be shifted based on on the position of the stars in whatever month or, you know, there's just, you can make a code so complicated. Uh, However, code breaking nowadays with computers and statistical math, I think has gotten a lot easier. And even while we're recording this episode, uh, a famous code that had not been broken for a long time just got broken. One, That's right. Is it the Zodiac Killer, one of his letters? That's right, yeah. And that one sat on, I mean, a lot of people, the CIA, all sorts of people tried to do it. And it was, uh, I think it was from the 60s or 70s. So it was, I mean, decades and decades of people trying. And, um, but yeah, you're right. It was just a couple of weeks ago that one of the letters finally got solved. Yeah, so, you know, this could be solved tomorrow. We don't know. Sure. Um I think an interesting question is why do people write codes in the first place? Mm. Uh, Famously in, I think world war two, they were using codes of, or it's probably in any war, honestly, they're using codes about strategy. They don't want the information to be uh, fallen into enemy hands, but that is not really why you would write a book about plants. I think like you're, you want that information to be accessible. You don't want yeah. to be lost in code. Although you did mention Da Vinci, and I guess Da Vinci is just idiosyncratic enough that he wanted his plans to be coded. I guess. Um, and you point out, so I actually learned a little bit as well about the idea of a pharmacopoeia. Have you heard of this? Oh, is that is that like an all-encompassing medicine book? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And to your point, the the point, the idea of it was like, these are the plants that are useful for headaches and these are the plants you should not eat. And like it's, it's intention was to be known and read and understood. And this, this book doesn't seem to have any sort of, yeah, nothing worth hiding really. 
And I also think to your point that this could be, you know, like people make codes. So maybe this is, um, you know, just a code. Um, that, that goes along with what I was saying that like, if you put somebody in a monastery for 30 years and just say, try and make a really hard code. <laughs> they can probably do it. They could probably do it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they're not on their phones. What else? Yeah. There? Right. So that's one thought of the nature of this. The other is has to do with the fact that I'm not a linguist. And that is to say that I think if there were a language known as Voynikis in the 1400s that had a written alphabet, we would definitely know about it. And yeah. there would probably be examples of this text in other places. Right. That makes me think that this is a made-up language, and it is just a code. Whether or not the code is a hoax, I don't know, but it, it definitely feels made up to me. Um, however, I think it's so romantic to try and imagine that this is some lost language, you know, yeah. that has never been found. I, I just think fourteen hundred is probably too late for that. There, I agree. Literacy was high. Every monk worth his salt knows how to write. And there's a lot of documents being passed around as early as, you know, seven or 800, let alone 1400. Uh, yeah, I agree with that. And, and on the topic of truly lost languages, so linear A and linear B are ancient Minoan languages. Um, and linear B has been deciphered, but linear A remains un-understandable today. And, but to your point, it is thousands of years old. Yeah. It is, um, you know, it was 14, 1800 years before Christ, which is different than, you know, 1400, which um, by then, as you said, most languages were in, in print and in almost in their modern form. I mean, if, if somebody from 1400 was standing in front of me and spoke English, we could figure yeah. it out. Mm -hmm. we, could, we could communicate reasonably well. So, um, so yeah, I think, and I think that's a good point. There would be other, there should be other forms of this writing. I think in any case, whether it's a secret, you know, like you said, the romantic idea of a secret lost language, well, there should be some other book if there were multiple speakers, mm -hmm. but if it's a code that some monk spent years working on, you'd think we'd have other documents of it as well in that case too. Oh, totally. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, as romantic as it might be to say this is a lost language, it just doesn't seem likely. Although, you know, who knows? Maybe this is the alphabet for, like, the Basque language. I'm pretty sure the Basque language was unwritten for a long time. The yeah. Basque language is a weird one in Europe because it's uh, not known where it comes from. It's not related to any other language in Europe. It's just yeah. totally different. So maybe it's well, this. <laughs> Yeah. And on that note, there is the suggestion that this is a natural language, which um, the idea of that is if, if you've ever had this, um, this is one of those like two in the morning college freshman conversations. <laughs> like, how do you know that the blue that I see is the same <laughs> as the blue that you see? Um, sort of one of those conversations. But but the idea is, well, what if you took a group of children and just put them in a room and let them grow, give them the necessities oh. and keep them safe, but don't teach them any language, would they develop a language? And what would it be like? 
and how would that, you know, and um, so that's kind of, that's one branch of the idea of a natural language. Um, it's a language that's evolved naturally in humans through use and repetition um, without conscious planning or premeditation. So just kind of the, the brute communication that would come. You just kind of find your way and it's probably pretty yeah, clumsy in the beginning, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. You probably wouldn't be able to express a lot of abstract ideas. Um, and so languages, you know, grow over time. And as they clash with other languages and you realize, oh, there's a very useful concept in this other language, you, you take it and take it. And so over the course of human history, now we have languages that can express pretty abstract and, and advanced thoughts, but that takes a long time. Yeah. And so there, there is the idea that perhaps this is a, a, a natural language that somebody, um, you know, that, that developed naturally, somebody created a writing system. But again, I think, well, then where's the rest of it? Yeah, uh-huh. there's only one example of it. Right. And I think um, a nod to all the, the skeptics and cynics out there. I mean, I do think it's very fair to say that Voynich, I mean, he had means, motive and opportunity to do yeah. this. <laughs> he, I mean, he stood to benefit, especially because there was like a story that um, and, and he himself kind of um, supported and, and um fanned the flames of the story that Roger Bacon had written this, um, who's a famous kind of man of science from, from around that time. And so that would have been worth a lot of money. Uh, an undiscovered Roger Bacon manuscript coming around in the 1900s, that would have been unheard yeah. of and people would have wanted to know about it. So he had a motive. He was, you know, as we've said, he dealt in this stuff. He, he um, potentially could have um, come across a bunch of skins and he could have, you know, fashioned something that followed some rules that he would have known about. So I, I think that that is certainly not crazy. And it, it kind of follows the Occam's razor law that like, well, what's the simplest theory, the simplest idea mm -hmm. here, which is he just did it. Maybe this, this guy made it up. Isn't that um, kind of damning, by the way, too, that um, because it is easy to write a code that can never be broken it's possible that he was just writing gibberish letters. You know, it's not even real words. I don't know. Right. I mean, that we know of. Yeah. But, but then how do you, how do we account for the fact that words repeat? Oh, that's true. The linguistic patterns. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, but, yeah. I, 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 yeah. And I, and I think that is the beauty of this is that we just, we don't know. And we, we may never know. And that's. Maybe he was terrifying. writing like words from the dictionary or something it's like not a real sentence but it's gonna have patterns if you look at it in in the whole i don't know I, you know as we said i i tried to wrap my brain around this i try to figure out like what's the answer but it's hard yeah there's no clear answer i also think that often um i take solace in like well you know what in 50 years this is going to be a lot more clear than it is now that's true um and and in and in 100 years it's going to be a lot more clear like I, I i find some comfort in that like for instance if somebody's scheming and doing something that i don't like you know in the public sphere i think history's not going to be kind to this person or yeah. like one day we'll see that this was actually you know this this really was what we should have been doing all yeah along. Um, and this is a, a, a repudiation of that because it's the, the mystery that you want to say, well, you know, like the Zodiac letter in 40, 50 years, we'll solve it. But we've gone almost 500 years or however long it's been now. 
and we still there's nothing it's frustrating also in the sense of like if this is a hoax this guy just made it because he wanted a quick buck we are wasting so much time talking and thinking about it you know it looks made up it it also looks real though that's the unfortunate thing if you're looking at these illustrations and the letters it's very convincing looking yeah it really is so we uh we may never know and i think i'm i think i'm comfortable with that just a couple of footnotes to close out the episode I wanted to mention one of my favorite origin theories that didn't make it into the recording. Some people believe that the Voynich manuscript is an elaborate prank created by Orientalist Andreas Mueller to embarrass a Jesuit scholar named Althanasius Kircher. In the 1630s, Mueller sent some unintelligible text to Kircher with a note explaining it had come from Egypt and asking him for a translation. Kircher later claimed to have solved it. Kircher was made aware of the book via Georg Beresh, who was one of the earliest suggested owners of the Voynich manuscript. Beresh was a mutual friend of Mueller and Kircher. Perhaps this manuscript was part of Mueller's elaborate scheme to discredit Kircher, but the plan just never worked out and the book is what we have left. Finally, I wanted to mention that the Voynich manuscript is safe and sound at the Yale Rare Book and Manuscript Library. That is, until Nicolas Cage is forced to steal it in a race to save the world from aliens. Thanks for listening. If you want to send us a message, suggest an episode topic, or just say hi, check out at Race and Tyler Pod on Twitter, or on Instagram, check out at Race and Tyler Talk Wikipedia, or you can email us at Race and Tyler Talk Wikipedia at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.